You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered. But why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in um, Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach and also Hockey Town USA. Um, congratulations to the LA Kings on winning the Stanley Cup. And who'd have thunk that on the day when the mayor of Los Angeles was welcoming uh, the the champion Kings and Ma- Vice President Biden was congratulating the victorious U.S. team. That would be the mayor who dropped the f bomb. But <laughs> any event, um, congratulations to both teams. And um, you can check out our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. We have details and background on our guests and uh, the topics we're covering today, including some news updates. But we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about um, Canada's new spam law with. David Elder, he's um, with um, Steichman Elliott in Ottawa. And then the second half hour, we're going to be talking to um, a filmmaker of a very important new documentary that's going to be coming out this weekend in New York and then Los Angeles next week um, called Code Black. And it'll reshape how you view ERs. So, um, but without further ado, let me bring on David Elder. Um, David's with, as I mentioned, and Steichman Elliott in Ottawa. And actually, there's a there's um, a good reason why he's he's talking from Ottawa. <laughs> that being, today happens to be the anniversary of the um, the start of the War of 1812 in which we actually um, burned down Toronto and they um, the British burned down the White House. And it's part of the reason why um, Queen Victoria chose Ottawa as the capital of Canada when it was formed. But David, thank you on this auspicious day. Well, thank you. I'm glad to, glad to be here. Now, um, David, the, uh, the, the Canadian spam law is, is not anything new, but um, it was actually passed, I believe, in 2010. Yes, that's correct. And so the effective date is coming up on July 1st of this year. So why, why did it take seven years to get to that point? Uh, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's taken quite a long time. Uh, the, um, you know, the genesis for this actually goes back to the early sort of 2000s uh, where there was a task force struck to, to look at what was then, you know, seen as an emerging and significant problem with spam. Um, and, and I think things have evolved. I, I think it originally started out um, being largely about network protection and concerns about 
um, you know, the ability of service providers to to meet the demand that was created by all this spam and to be able to provision their networks and the associated costs of, of that kind of over-provisioning. And I think it's evolved from there to much more of a, a consumer protection focus. In terms of the actual uh, delay from the passage of the law, so when it finally, I mean, it got introduced uh, uh, a couple of times, um, died with the fall of government, and, and eventually got pulled forward with all party support. Um, the once it, it it sort of hit the light of day, I think there there were a lot of concerns that were raised, very significant concerns um, from the business community. Uh, and there was uh, heavy lobbying um, uh, of the government to try and and fix it to the extent they could, so they wouldn't uh, really create undue impediments to, to to people being able to do business. And I think that process, more than anything else, is the reason for the delay between the passage of the law uh, in uh, December of 2010 and the final enforce date. Uh, during that time period, there have been a, a few sets of proposed regulations, some comment periods, and, and a lot of lobbying and tweaking um, to get to where we are today. Yeah, because it's funny. I remember when the law was passed, uh, I saw some press release from Industry Canada that they were already getting ready and ramping up for enforcement. And uh, that that's quite a long ramp. Now, the the task force you referred to, was that was Michael Geist involved in that? Yeah, Yes, he was. Was he the one who had that, or I? I don't. I'm not sure that he he headed that. It was a it was a government led initiative uh, okay. that included stakeholders from uh, you know from a variety of, of areas of interest, and uh, and Professor Geist was was certainly part of that. Because that was kind of concurrent to when the United States was kind of grappling with the spam issue and ultimately passed the Can Spam Act. And I, I ran into Michael at a, a bunch of forums where, where we're debating the issues. Now, um, so the United States passed Can Spam, the Can Spam Act in 2003, December um, 7th or something like December 10th or something like that. And um, the, um, the Can Spam Act is basically is criticized sometimes because it, it, it means literally what it says. You can spam. <laughs> and that it, it, it basically their approach was we're not, we have a First Amendment uh, protection for commercial speech. So we're not going to ban spam, but we're going to regulate it. And they'll say, listen, if you want to spam, you have to do, do it by these certain rules. And so it actually is um, permits unsolicited email and it follows an opt-out approach. How and the Canadian um, model is different. Yes, it is. It's it's actually the complete opposite of that. Um, and so it's a it's an opt-in statute. The gen, the general rule under uh, the Canada Canadian anti-spam law, or Canada's anti-spam legislation, or CASL for short, um, is that you cannot send uh, a commercial electronic message without prior consent. That, that is the general rule. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but it, it is fundamentally an opt-in statute. So under can spam, you know, the, the, the definite, they also have the issue of what is a commercial message. But I, I usually um, don't, I tell clients not to bother with it because it really is of no consequence since the law is so easy to comply with. But in, in your case, I think obviously that sounds like that, whether or not something is commercial or not, could have very significant consequences. Yes, that's really the the key threshold question to the application of the whole law, um, and the um, you know the, the the actual requirements for the requirements about the form of the message, and those are are substantially the same as what I understand can spam requires. I mean, their identification requirements and an unsubscribe right. requirement. Unsubscribe. Those, those those in most cases aren't onerous, but obviously the consent requirement. Um, can be onerous, and and even you know with a number of the exemptions that are provided for in the law, the onus in all cases is on the sender of a message to be able to prove either that they had the required consent, or that uh, you know they could prove the existence of of the relationship or circumstances that would uh, you know give them the ability to make use of one of the exemptions. And so, in a lot of cases, there's a there's a real problem for for companies uh, to do that, particularly because lists were developed long before this law was right. uh, was thought of. Um, so let's let's kind of talk about 
maybe before we go down some of the details of, of what constitutes consent, let's talk about what is excluded. So um, messages, for example, from Canada to the United States, um, would that be subject to the uh, castle or is that a can spam issue? Well, you know, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, uh, uh, you know, theoretically, the law says, the uh, Canadian law says it applies to messages uh, sent from computer systems located in Canada or received through computer systems located in Canada. So it, it, it purports to apply to messages sent from Canada to, to other jurisdictions, including into the U.S. However, there's also a provision that says if, you, if you're sending from Canada to a foreign jurisdiction, that jurisdiction has its own anti-spam law, and you comply with that foreign law, you don't need to comply with uh, the Canadian anti-spam law. Now, you know, this, this ignores the fact that, in fact, you might have to comply with that foreign law anyway. Um, right. But in the case of, uh, I, I think because can-spam is, is uh, a much more reasonable law in terms of its opt-out approach, it's relatively easy to comply with. And I, I would expect... Um, most companies sending uh, commercial electronic messages from Canada into the U.S. will will choose to comply with CAN-SPAM um, and and be able to benefit from from that exception to the Canadian law. And um, so it, that's excluded. And there's also some exclusions for charities and government organizations. I mean, excuse me, political organizations. Correct. Yes, the uh, you know our our members of parliament always seem to manage to vote themselves an exception, um, but there there is also a broad exception for registered charities. So these would be charities that um, are recognized under income tax law as being uh, capable of issuing income tax receipts uh, for charitable deductions, and and any um, commercial electronic messages that those charities would send, uh, the primary purpose of which would be for fundraising. Um, would be excluded. So, the um, what are some of the other issues in terms of you know commercial? Um, what is the commercial email exceptions that you think or clients should you should really focus on? Well, well, I think there's a couple of things. One, I mean, if we can just go back to the the definitional question, I I think there are, uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty uh, still at this point about exactly what is a commercial electronic message. Um, it's a very, uh, very broadly worded definition, and it, it generally um, relates to a message that is, uh, you know, one of the purposes of which, not even the primary purpose, just one of the purposes of which is seen to encourage participation in the commercial activity. And it, it you know, clearly would include direct offers of goods or services for sale, but it would also include, uh, and this is where it gets into a really gray area, uh, general sort of advertising and marketing of a of a person or a, or a company that provides certain goods or services, and some of the um, interpretation or the guidance that we've received to date uh, from staff at the CRTC, which will be the the uh, entity that will be policing the law, has led us to believe that that could be given extremely broad interpretation. So, for example, uh, it, it may be that uh, publishing a newsletter. Uh, for promotional purposes that is branded with with your company and may include contact information at the end uh, may well be considered to be a commercial electronic message if it's sent electronically um, so that 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 is a significant concern right now for business because they don't know um, definitively where that where that line is between what is and what is the commercial electronic message and therefore you know where where they'll have to provide an unsubscribe and where they'll have to have consent up front. Um, so that's clearly a, a huge issue. Now, yeah, it seems like there's also um, some organizations. Some organizations are completely exempt, and some and there's some portions of the law where you're um, you're exempt from the consent requirement, but not the disclosure requirement. That's correct. Yeah. And could you just highlight what what, what that distinction is? Well, you know, I mean, I, some of the. Um, uh, some of the exceptions for, I mean, there's quite a few of them, but um, the, some of the ones that we just talked about, for example, the, the exemption for um, commercial electronic messages, or CEMs as we call them, 
that sit on behalf of political parties or organizations, the ones that we talked about for charities, um, uh, the ones that, um, you know, uh, are sent on a kind of a business-to-business basis. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, all of these would be full exemptions, so they they would not have to comply with either the consent requirement or the message form requirements. But most of the other exemptions um, are only partial. So when you're in a business, for example, that is a, a consumer-facing business, um, you really only have one exemption available to you uh, under the law, and that's what's known as the existing business relationship exemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it forgives you the requirement to have um, uh, prior consent. It, it sort of deems an implied consent under the law, but you do you are required to uh, to meet message form requirements, including the unsubscribe. Now. Um how in terms of the unsubscribe how what is the time period for processing and i know in the can spam there's restrictions on basically once someone unsubscribes you can't touch that um data at all other than for processing you know your um your unsubscribe list yeah, the the requirement in in the Canadian law is that uh, an unsubscribe request be given effect to forthwith, but in no case uh, in less than um, or in more than ten business days. Okay, so just, so that, uh, yeah, that's the same here. But, yeah, but there aren't those sort of further uh, restrictions that you're talking about. Whether there are other limits on 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 what it can be used for, how it can be handled. It's, it's a standard, you know, to take them off the list within ten days. So, for, so for example, one thing that's prohibited in the U.S. is, is once you've opted out, um, you know, can I still sell your email address to other people? And the U.S. law would not not permit that. But I guess you know, you're saying Canadian law might. Yeah, there's no express prohibition in the law on your ability to sell that list. Um, you know, although anyone using that list would, uh, you know, would be subject to this law. Right. And and so I think, you know, it raises a lot of issues now for uh for those who acquire lists from third party vendors. Right. Clearly um, I would want to know, you know, what what is the health of that list and how many of these people have opted out. Right. Um you know, the one theory is an opt out is a it has value because you know it's the actual email that responds, but at the same time it's also an email that doesn't want to get certain offers. Yes. Well, and it gets even further complicated because there, you know, there are uh, some of these exemptions available under the law for implied consent, and the CRTC has indicated that in some ways they they can trump uh, a request for unsubscribe. So, for example, if if someone uh, has previously unsubscribed from your email marketing list, and then they they purchase they make a purchase from you. That gives rise to a partial exemption that allows you to send them commercial electronic messages for for two years, um, and the CRTC has said, well, if 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 they do that, then that exemption applies and and it kind of overrides the previous uh, unsubscribe. So um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens on Canada Day besides. Canada Day <laughs> after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Before you painstakingly create another label or drag yourself to the post office, set a course to ShipStation, your key to e-commerce shipping nirvana. Save time by easily importing orders from wherever you sell, like Amazon, eBay, and over 40 others. Save money with discounted USPS rates and a free USPS account. Automate manual tasks through bulk label and invoice printing, custom shipping rules, and much more. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com slash WebmasterRadio now. Shipping Nirvana starts here. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. 
While some affiliate networks can give you offers, Affiliate Offers Network gives you offers that pay big. Why do affiliates work with Affiliate Offers Network? How about because they work with powerhouse CPAs like Affiliate.com? How about that affiliates get paid every Monday to kick off their work week? Plus, learn how their green bucket system can turn your email, display ad, social, video, or mobile impression into profitable income. Get connected today with Affiliate Offers Network. Call 312-560-0175 or visit AffiliateOffersNetwork.com. Guys, are you suffering from FD, fulfillment dysfunction? Let MoldingBox.com's online portal system for inventory, tracking, and returns perform for you. We have the enormous tools you need for complete warehousing, shipping, and handling of all your packages, no matter the size or shape, directly to your customers. MoldingBox.com can also fulfill all your nourishing, nutraceutical, and smooth skincare product desires, including green coffee and Garcinia on demand. Plus, let our in-house printing and CD, DVD manufacturing help you enlarge and maximize your coaching and business opportunity potential. We do everything. Fulfillment, shipping, tracking, inside and out, and all in one place. Moldingbox.com. It's shipping made sexy. Exploring the latest trends and topics in e-commerce and affiliate marketing. Welcome to Affiliate Wire. On demand anytime inside the Affiliate Marketing Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. the pending Canadian spam law that goes into effect on July 1st, which happens to be Canada Day. Um, and why, can't, why don't you tell us a little bit about the penalty provisions of this law? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of an ironic Canada Day gift uh, from the Canadian government to Canadian businesses. Uh, its um, own fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And and the, the penalties uh, can be rather severe. Um, first and foremost, the, the law provides for administrative monetary penalties, which are fines by any other name, uh, ranging up to a million dollars for individuals or $10 million uh, for businesses. Is that a, a uh, per event, per email, or, or just a maximum liability? It's it's It's... Per occurrence, theoretically, wow. um, but I, you know, I, I don't know that realistically we will see um, uh, fines near the top end of that for uh, for what we might think of as legitimate businesses. Um, I think, uh, you know, remembering that this law applies not only to uh, the businesses we deal with every day, but does indeed apply to to real spammers and scammers. Right. Um, I, I think the $10 million will be reserved for, you know, the Nigerian princes and the cut-rate Viagra purveyors. Um, but I think we certainly will see uh, substantial fines, and certainly in the, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, I think if we take a page to the way the CRTC in this country has enforced our telemarketing rules and our national do not call list, uh, that's certainly kind of the range of fines that we've seen. Uh, still very substantial. There's also, uh, you know, uh, of great concern is the law contains a private right of action. Right. And, and it allows a party to sue for damages, uh, you know, where, where they're aggrieved because of noncompliance with the law. Um, and and that allows them to sue for actual damages, which is probably not that much of a concern. Uh, but it also allows them to claim up to two hundred dollars without proving damages. And, and obviously, the concern there is you take that that aspect of the private right of action and put it into a class action situation, and and the potential liability uh, can multiply greatly. Yeah, you know, we we have that here in the United States, and you know, um, ours in Canada, for excuse me, in California, it's it's up to a thousand dollars per, 
And mm-hmm. um, so at, when you know, at two, when when I heard a million dollars, and I was thinking you might have some people um, applying for dual citizenship, but since it's a two hundred dollar cap for private right of action, maybe not yeah. so much. Yeah. But um, there's there's one other facet to the law that um, before everyone falls off their chair, worried about these damages, is um, on July first. 2014, there will be no private right of action. Correct. That is that is supposed to be the case. Yes, the um, the the law comes into force in stages, uh, and so July 1st is the is the enforced date for the is the, the core anti-spam provisions. Um, there are other parts of the law to come that will come into force at a later date. The private right of action will not come into force for another three years. Um, and and there are other provisions of the law that we haven't talked about, but the the, the law also uh, prohibits the the installation of a computer program on on another's computer system. So drive-by uh, downloads would yeah without prior consent, and, and that and that uh, we have another uh, six months or so that comes into force in January of of 2015. And what about the opt-in requirement? When does that come into effect? Well, the opt-in requirement versus, versus implied consent versus opt-in. Well, as of as of July first, if you send a commercial electronic message, you either have to have uh, prior explicit consent, uh, or you have to fit within one of the one of the exceptions that that set out in the act. Um, so it may be, you know, for some organizations, they may have previously collected uh, uh, valid express consent that will continue to be honored. Um, it may be that because um, that person is, a, is an existing customer, they will benefit from you know, implied consent under the law, at least for the, the two-year period if it's a consumer-facing organization. Uh, or, or it may be that, they'll, you know, that they will not be able to send a, a message in compliance with the law uh, after that date. The, the other particularly interesting feature of it is even sending a message to someone, if you send a, an electronic message to someone asking for consent to be able to send them commercial electronic messages, that request in itself is considered to be a commercial electronic message. So, that, in, you know, as of July 1st, if you want to ask someone for consent, you have to first have their consent. And well, it, it's curious because I've I've seen something on some blogs that some Canadians are complaining that getting, you know, the level of spam has increased as everyone has been bombarding, you know, their their customers or consumers um, with requests for consent. We're we're certainly in the thick of that now, and I think a lot of us are suffering from consent fatigue. Uh, my <laughs> inbox my inbox is filled daily with uh, solicitations from uh, companies that uh, some of which I've never really dealt with uh, uh, that have my name somehow and are, and are seeking uh, consent. So, um, and and also unlike United States, in some cases, although I don't know if it's this is debatable in the United States, but um, you consent has to be expressed. You can't have a pre-check box. It- yeah, and that and that's the that's what the CRTC has said. Certainly, going forward, that uh, it will not be accepting uh, pre-check boxes uh, as a way of obtaining consent. Although I think you know a lot a lot of that really depends on the circumstances in which that arises. So I think if it's a you know if it's a pre-checked box. Um, that is part of a, uh, say, an online transaction. Someone is buying goods online, um, and there's a somewhere in there's a pre-check box uh, purporting to provide consent. Certainly, that will not be permitted going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if it's if it's a single purpose um, transaction, you know, uh, provide us with your email, uh, and we'll add you to our list. And, and, you know, and someone does that, and if, if there happens to be a, a pre-check box or even no box at all just saying, I hereby give my consent, I mean, that, that is certainly going to be valid. But, but tacking it in as part of another um, uh, transaction or, or another set of terms and conditions, it will very clearly have to require uh, uh, an opt-in, an unchecked box that the consumer would check. We only have a, f- a few minutes left. Why don't you tell us a little bit about y- your firm and your practice and, and where people can find more information about you? 
Well, I'm uh, our firm. Obviously, is uh, I think you mentioned that earlier, Spikeman Elliott uh, LLP. We are a, uh, a Canadian-focused law firm, although we do have offices uh, several international locations, including New York. Uh, we have five offices across Canada. Have a broad business-focused practice. Uh, that includes uh, areas such as unsolicited telecommunications. Um, our website is uh, uh, steichman.com, www.steichman.com, and, and on that homepage, there's actually a link to uh, a Castle resource page that provides a description of our practice in that area and uh, some helpful sort of summary material and, and other resources for people looking to try and make sense of this admittedly very complex and confusing law. Are you going to be presenting on this anytime soon or any webinars or anything else if people wanted to follow you? I don't have any uh, immediate one schedule. I bet I have done 50 of them <laughs> in the last year. Uh, I would say on that, on our website, as I mentioned, if you go to that Castle resource page, there is a, uh, a canned version of, a, of a, pre- a client presentation I did uh, a couple of months ago um, that's available along with the slide deck. And it, it provides a kind of a general overview and walkthrough of the law and its various components. And what has the response from clients been? How, 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 what is the business community? How do they feel about this new law? Uh, it, it ranges from sort of disbelief to rage. <laughs> um, you know, and particularly I'm finding more and more as I'm talking to foreign-based clients, and, and we do a lot of business with, with companies based in the U.S., that that just can't get over it, uh, you know, and ask me what the Canadian government was thinking and 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 those sorts of things. So it is not it is not a popular law uh, with businesses at all, and uh, there's a significant amount of uh, time and resources uh, at the moment that are are being directed at at, at complying. And, and and I think many people think for very little purpose that they've been sending commercial electronic messages for years and years with a voluntary opt out mechanism that very few people have taken advantage of, and now they're having to bend over backwards to be able to secure consent or document the existence of a relationship that gives rise to an exemption. So, I mean, is it fair to say that if I'm a Canadian consumer, that um, most of the emails I get from businesses probably more or less comply with U.S. or comparable to U.S. standards for can spam anyway? And I, I think that's certainly true of, of recognized sort of brands and companies you do business with every day, yes. So the really, the really major event is that this is going to be allow enforcement. And then, and of course, obviously the whole, oops, oh, by the way, we want you to get express consent. <laughs> right. Well, I think that, I think the, the requirement for express consent is, you know, is one of the biggest problems with the law. It, it fundamentally changes the sort of dynamic um, between businesses and, and their customers and, and creates a significant hurdle um, to reach out to people that, that they already have on their list in many cases, but, but have, you know, can't prove how they got there. Well, we only have a, another minute or two left, and um, I, I figured, given how I started off by mentioning that um, this the Stanley Cup resides here in Los Angeles for a second time in three years, um, how, does, how does a Canadian feel about that? <laughs> well, I, I think overall, probably not all that excited. Um, you know, Canada, it, it is uh, considered by, by many to be our national game, although there's a, a constant debate about whether it's really supposed to be lacrosse. But I, I think in, in our hearts, we consider it our national game and, and feel like it belongs here. But certainly a, a number of American teams, uh, you know, have, have, have won many times in the in the. The cup has sojourned outside the country, but we we were very hopeful for a while there earlier this year that the Habs were going to pull it off, but uh, unfortunately it wasn't to be. We'll, yeah, get, my, we'll get you next year. My wife is a Habs fan. My wife is um, Canadian, and we actually uh, we went to a Habs game with the Kings, with the Canadians in L.A., and um, when the Kings went ahead, I tweeted that our Canadians are beating your Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it happens, you know. And so, you know, I think we're we're kind of over the Gretzky thing now, uh, <laughs> sort of stealing him away. But uh, yeah, no, there's uh, there's some very good hockey, and uh, we can all hang up our skates now until uh, until next year. Great. Well, I hope to have you back because apparently there's some been 
major developments in Canada on the internet in terms of privacy and then the British Columbia ruling about having Google take stuff down. So we may have to have you come back and explain it all for us. But um, I want to thank you very much. And um, what's your website if people want to go there? Again, it's www.stikeman.com. David, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And and have a wonderful um, Canada Day, even if it makes you busy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try. Thanks, Bennett. Thank you. We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at InternetMarketingNinjas.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. You rely on your website to promote your business. And while you're busy doing what you love, you need a site that can keep up. GoDaddy Web Hosting is built from the ground up for lightning speed, reliability, and rock-solid performance. It includes over 150 free apps like WordPress and Drupal to build and manage your site. And with 99.9% uptime and industry-leading load times, you never have to worry if your site is up and running. Visit GoDaddy.com and enter code HOSTFM to get web hosting for $1 a month, plus a free domain. Some limitations apply. See website for details. Time to open your PPC playbook. Optimized by PPC professionals. Learn how to execute winning strategies for building your structured ad campaigns and optimize your bids and targeted ads with the tips and advice of our PPC pros. Inside your PPC playbook. Optimized by PPC professionals. Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, starting June 19th, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the, the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyberlaw Biz Report, um, second segment. And um, we um, unfortunately are not going to be able to get our code black filmmaker, Ryan, on. Um, it's my actually... fault, Bennett. It's my fault. No, no, actually, there's, um, you went out of word of it, but there's a. Um, some major some beams fell from uh, construction on the freeway, 
and two beams have fallen and um, workers workers were on them and they fell off and the um, the one of the major arteries in uh, LA have been is shut down and so if that could be that he had a hard time he was taking a red eye he could be they had a hard time getting from the airport um, because it, the whole 405 is shut down and uh, which actually much as it was 20 years ago yesterday when O.J. Simpson <laughs> had his low-speed car chase. And uh, it was a very real memorable night. If you can think back to where you were that night, uh, I still think it's one of the most bizarre events I- I've ever seen. And just the, the fact that the NBA Finals were on with um, the New York Knicks, you know, the nation's number one media market, and um, they actually... Uh, playing the Houston Rockets, and they actually cut away <laughs> from that game to go to, um, you know, the OJ low speed chase, which is just—it's still <laughs> such a bizarre event. I remember where I was. I was on a date at uh, this restaurant, Cities and Adams Morgan, uh-huh. and uh, and I just remember everyone standing by the bar watching this mm-hmm. this event. It was just very bizarre. But um, so, any event, um, moving away from OJ, as we all have. The um, there's a major news coming out of Washington this morning, and the uh, U.S. and Patent and Trademark Office, the uh, the um, Trademark Board um, Board of Appeals, has actually um, canceled the Washington Redskins trademark um, because the term is offensive, and there's been this growing crescendo of uh, um, op- of course of opposition to the Redskin mark and the Redskin name. And um, during the world, during the NBA Finals, I think there have been ads run, and during the World Cup, there are being ads run about the name and how offensive it is. And so, it's um, it's this will really um, spur impetus for the league to um, to change the name, and for Donald Schneider, the owner, who's been very resistant. And um, you know, I let me give you some background. I, I you know, I always tell people. I, well, I lived in. I moved to Washington the same year as Ronald Reagan and Joe Gibbs, and um, I was there for all three Super Bowl victories. And then, then I moved to Los Angeles. And uh, you know, so I'm I'm a Redskins fan. And if you know its history, um, the 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 Redskins owner it used to be called the Boston Braves, and then it was changed to Redskins. And um, the owner of the the Redskins who was behind that was a very hardcore segregationist, um, and he, um, you know, he was the last owner to integrate his team um, in the NFL. And you know, that may be partly why you know the Redskins stunk for so long is you know because he would refuse to hire black players. He said, "I will hire a black player when the NAACP hires white people." And um, so he was a very um, hardcore bigot, and so I mean that that's you know, the 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 name itself is is tainted um, based on that. Um, and in addition, if you just look up in the dictionary of what a redskin is, um, if, the dictionary definition it says um, from dictionary. Here's the definition: redskin, offensive slang, used as a disparaging term for a Native American. So I mean, is it's and it's also it's distinct from brave or chief or anything else because it, I mean, it it literally is about race. It's about the color of someone's skin. I mean, what can be more fundamental than that? And um, so, I mean, and getting back to the owner, um, his name was George Marshall, and he made Dixie one of the team's fight songs. Of course, the Redskins do have the legendary um, "Hail to the Redskins" fight song that you hear all throughout Washington um, because. There's, there's only one team that Washington cares about, and that's the Redskins. And um, so the, um, and then the other thing is you're playing in the nation's capital, you know, one of the most predominantly black communities in the country. And uh, you know, so obviously, I think the owner should have a little sensitivity about race. But then there's one other factor to consider, and in, in for um, the owner, and I'm not sure, I'm, I don't know why he, he, he's so adamant about not changing it. But frankly, he could make a lot of money. I mean, a new name um, could would be a hot sell. Everyone in Washington would buy it, and if you pick it right, it could become the top seller of all 
you know, NFL teams. I mean, just remember how the NHL, when the San Jose Sharks or the um, Anaheim Ducks came came into town, you know, they, they were the new the new thing. That you know, other names had been around for a while, and this was like a cool hot jersey or a cool hot hat to buy. And so, merchandising, I think, would just take off. You know, of course, it would help if the Redskins didn't suck like they did this year. But you know, um, so I, I think it's something. I think it's a positive development, frankly. I, although I would expect that the owner is going to fight it. Um, you know, that's just his nature. He fights everything. Um, and then wouldn't be surprised if the league fights it just because they don't want the president. But, um, you know, at this point, appealing a ruling that something is offensive, you know, it's, um, it may be something that the league may not want to do. Um, just because of the negative PR, but you know, interestingly, we're about to go to training camp is starting, um, so it's going to be interesting. And obviously, you know, they're not going to be changed this year. Um, you know, the, the league would have to get whole new uniforms and improve everything. It's it's going to be hard to do. But then, how does the Redskins protect their name if if they're they don't have a valid trademark? Um, so it's it's definitely you know, the, there are common law rights even without a federal registration. But obviously your damages are, aren't what they're available at, those that are available under federal law. So that's a, a major development that just happened this morning. But there's a big development yesterday in Internet law um, coming out of Cincinnati. And I'm um, talking about another team that sucks. But <laughs> um, the um, there's a, a case there involving the dirty that has got a lot of attention and uh, it went up on appeal, and the Sixth Circuit finally came in and made their ruling. And um, it wasn't a surprise ruling, but it was a much-anticipated ruling. And that case involves a woman by the name of Sarah Jones. And Sarah Jones was a, a, a cheerleader with the Cincinnati Bengals. And it's also, at the same time, a schoolteacher in um, Kentucky, which is just across the, the river from Cincinnati. And... Um, so the dirty actually the website the dirty people had posted some um, entries that referred to her um, as having slept with every um, member of the Bengals and um, also as uh, um, having had sex in school with her boyfriend and uh, having contracted certain um, cooties um, to put it kindly and uh, so the um, and at the time the um, website host, you know, the owner, um, Nick Ritchie, made a comment that said, why are all high school teachers freaks in the sack? And so based on the fact that, of the nature of the dirty and um, Mr. Ritchie's comments, um, the court in Kentucky decided that, you know, the, generally websites are immune from um, liability for content posted by third parties. But it said that in this case, you know, we, they, they, they basically had such a role. They've encouraged the creation of defamatory content and even had a role in it and validating it with the, with Mr. Ritchie's comments that, um, that in itself is sufficient to, um, by reason, and the court said, by reason, the very name of the site, the dirty, the manner in which it is managed and the personal comments of defendant Ritchie, Defendants have specifically encouraged development of what is offensive about the content of the site. And so they ruled that the immunity afforded under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that protects you know, websites from liability was not available in this case. Um, the dirty wanted to appeal. Their lawyer, David Ingrass, um, specifically said, they let us, let's do an immediate appeal. And the court said no. And so what happened was you actually had two trials, as the first trial was a mistrial, and then it finally goes up on appeal. And you know, while it's on appeal, everyone in the internet community, you know, basically who's anyone, came in behind the dirty, um, the ACLU, the EFF, you know, Amazon, um, CNN, you know, anybody, I and mean, basically um, AOL, Google, you name it. Um, they all came in behind uh, the dirty, and so no one was surprised then when the ultimate result came, and that was that the um, the, the court applied the wrong standard, and uh, and they reversed it. And actually, the court did a, a very good job in, in out laying out 
the policy issues at play here. And, um, and it concluded quite eloquently. It said that we note that the broad immunity furnished by the CDA does not necessarily um, lead persons who are objects of anonymously posted online defamatory content um, without a remedy. In this case, Jones conceded that she did not attempt to recover from the persons whose comments Ritchie elected to publish. She conceded that she did not attempt to subpoena Ritchie or Dirty World to discover who authored defamatory posts. Instead, she sued Dirty World and Ritchie. But under the CDA, Jones cannot seek her recovery from the online publisher where the publisher did not materially contribute to tortious conduct. Congress envisioned a free and open Internet, and the immunity... which the, and the immunity provisions of the CDA, which subverts common law publisher liability, serves that purpose. While some exercises of, con- of the considerable freedom that Congress allowed online publishers are regrettable, clearly a reference to the dirty, um, freedom and its uses are distinct. Congress in action enacted the CDA to preserve a free Internet, and that enactment resolves this case. So a very cl- decisive, clear um, and not surprising um, decision from the Sixth Circuit, and um, so you definitely want to check it out. It is on our blog, um, and it's also at, at Internet Law Center blog, um, ILC Cyber Report. And um, but the other thing that's interesting, though, is there's a, there's a a premise in all this debate is that the CDA is absolute, and it, and I think in theory it is. But there was actually a, a law review article published by Loyola Los Angeles Law Review in 2010 that actually took a, an empirical analysis of cases involving the CDA immunity and to see, you know, we keep saying this is this absolute immunity. What happens when we apply it? And um, surprisingly, it found that in, um, in over half the cases, it, it was not applied. So, for example... Um, it found that um, in, for defamation cases in federal courts, sixty-five percent of the cases were were were, were found to they applied the uh, immunity, and but only fifty-eight percent in um, defamation cases. Emotional distress, eighty-two um, percent um, in federal, but only fifty in federal. Um, privacy claims, less than fifty for both state and federal. And there was an important point that was raised by the judge. And, and jabbing um, the lower court judge was that this should have been decided earlier. It said, given the role the CDA plays in an open and robust Internet by preventing the speech-chilling threat of the heckler's veto, um, we point out that determinations of immunity under the CDA should be resolved at an early stage of litigation, um, explaining that immunity is an immunity from suit rather than a mere defense to liability, and is effectively lost if a case is erroneously permitted to go to trial, as was the case here. Well, um, only in half the cases does the CDA raised, um, CD immunity in only half the cases is it raised at the motion to dismiss level or, or addressed at the motion to dismiss level. And only 61 of those cases, 61% of those cases were successful. A full quarter of the cases deal with, um, in, the, in this loyal review, law review analysis, a quarter of the cases deal with it at the summary judgment level. So, and, and that, in those cases, um, were successful in two thirds of the case. So, um, the, the, the whole notion that this is, um, an absolute bar is, uh, is, I think, in theory, what it should be, but in practice, it really isn't. And judges somehow find a way to ignore it. And so, um, that that is really the lesson of the the dirty, but um, definitely a major development. As I mentioned, also there were some major rulings um, coming from Canada to, in yesterday that we really haven't had an opportunity to digest, um, but we will talk about some more and uh, maybe have David back to um, explain really what it, what is going on there. But um, so we only have a few minutes left here. Um, and uh, there are have been some other developments we, we talked about. Um, what is going on with net neutrality. <laughs> and you may recall the um, John Oliver segment in which he compared um, FCC Chairman um, Wheeler to um, have oversight because of his role with the cable company, having oversight of the Internet to leaving your child with a, uh, instead of a babysitter with a dingo. 
And uh, apparently uh, it got the chairman's attention who actually um, made the, the, the odd announcement that he was not a dingo. So um, that's why you listen to the show. So you can learn that the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission is not, in fact, a dingo, in case you were wondering. Um, but um, so there is a meme going around the Internet now that has Meryl Streep saying, um, you know, a dingo stole my Internet. But any event... Um, it's it definitely an interesting week here, um, here in Los Angeles with the uh, the World Cup, with the uh, um, and the LA Kings and the Mayor's F bomb. Although there is one um, World Cup um, internet joke, and that is that the reason why the Nigerian team failed to score a goal against Iran was that all their shots went into the spam folder. But that's the best I can do um, to link the two. But any event. Um, we, we have some upcoming events to tell you about. Uh, I will be starting tonight is Silicon Beach Fest uh, returns again to um, Los Angeles. We're having a, a full um, slate of events, and um, so I'll be covering that and report to you on next that on next week. Also, uh, ICANN fifty the um, if, if ICANN has their um, three meetings a year that take place. Um, with all people gathered from all over the world to discuss what's going on in the domain world. And Icon 50 begins on Sunday in London. So um, safe travels to all of you there. And uh, we look forward to seeing more on uh, what's going on in the domain world. It's a very hot property. This is actually the most um, well-attended Icon um, event they've had. Um, and you know this whole um, new GTLT thing is really taking off. Um, dot Berlin and Dot London and Dot New York all seem to be doing really well. Um, dot UK is very hot, so I just think it's a, it's a great opportunity and uh, it's really making some for exciting opportunity, you know, business ideas here. And um, so we'll report back on that. So I will um, be, look forward to um, going to Silicon Beach Fest once again. With we'll, let's get you the latest on what's going on in Silicon Beach. A lot of hot startups, and a lot of you know, starting. You know, we're moving past startups; they're maturing. You know, for example, Frank Adante from um, you know, Rubicon Project. You know, they've gone public. You know, that's 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 beyond startup phase. You know, they're doing very well, and um, he's going to be there. And um, it, it, there's going to be a lot of other interesting events there. Also, talk about you know the LA's role in trying to push for a gigabyte city. All interesting developments, and so. Um, it's going to be a, a it's going to be a, a good they have three packed days of events, so it's uh, we're looking forward to seeing how that breaks down, and um, so we also have um, some other shout outs. I want to give thanks to everyone um, who worked with us on the um, the uh, California bars IP and the internet. And um, Ian Ballon and Chris Kelly in particular, but I am getting the hook. Time is running out. So this is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Check out our blog, um, internetlawcyclcyberreport.wordpress.com. Um, Check out the show blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Check us out on Twitter, cyberlawradio. And um, we'll be back next week in this spot. Um, court is adjourned. We'll see you back here, Internet Law Center, the Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. See you next week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs. On demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.